Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. And it has a new Jetfire V8 engine that really takes off. It's a big, solid car that whips around the sharpest curve. A family car that turns and handles like a dream. And that's not all. Nash has the widest wraparound windshield of all. Come on, brutal old boy. We're going to see the 1955 Nash. Yes, for 55, come with Nash into a new motoring age. Thrill to brand new power. A new 208 horsepower Ambassador Jetfire V8 engine to give you get-up-and-go performance that commands the American road. There's a new Sceneramic Wraparound Windshield, widest of any car. And for 55, Nash gives you completely new handling ease. Even on sharpest curves, you'll cling to the road like a streamlined train. Huge Nash deep coil springs inclined at an angle work like sea legs to give you greater stability on curves. Ever see a big family car maneuver like this? A big car that could turn like this? Yes, for a totally new driving experience, thrill test the new Nash Ambassador and Statesman at your Nash dealers tomorrow. Another reason why American Motors means more for Americans. Hello out there. Peabody and Sherman here. Set the Wayback Machine. We enter the Wayback and we're immediately turtled back through time and space. And now for all you music lovers, it's time for your traffic report. There's a six... Oh. What is it, Scooby? Can't you see I'm broadcasting here? Pile up on the tri-level, got you backed up all the way to the off-ramp. So, if you're traveling this morning, try to give yourself an extra day or two, folks. <laughs> Hang on, folks. I've just been handed this important bulletin. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our regularly scheduled program to bring you this special report. Like live, as it happens. Hey, this is Chip Foos, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Rock on. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Video and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can hear us live in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, visit NostalgicRadioandCars.com. That's where we store, save, archive, and promote our past shows. 673 shows over... Going into, well into, 14 years now. Good evening, Matt. How you doing? Well, we have a great show for you tonight. We have uh, Bob Gurr returning back, and he's a legendary designer that uh, went to the Art Center College of Design in California. And he worked for, well, he was supposed to work for General Motors, but he worked for Ford. Then he worked for Kaiser. And then he spent 27 years working for Walt Disney. 
and he is the man that's responsible for designing the very first monorail, along with many of those little car rides that we used to ride around on, namely the Autopia. And actually, there was the Autopia 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and I believe Mark 7. So we will be talking a little bit about uh, the monorail and maybe the Autopia cars this evening. But wait, there's more. Not only was Bob responsible for the monorail and the Autopia cars, but he was also responsible and involved in the design and development of many of the rides at Disneyland and Disney World that we've all come to enjoy. So, for example, if you guys remember one of my favorites, Wings of Man, uh, back in the 70s, that was Eastern Ireland. I think later Delta took that over. Haunted Mansion, remember that one? Thunder Mountain, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Tomorrowland, Dumbo. It's a Small World, Space Mountain, and the list goes on and on and on. So definitely tune into the show. Now, this is going to be a multi-part series because this guy is totally fascinating. Everybody can relate to Disney World, and we are thrilled to have Bob Gurr back with us. So, But also, the big deal is this week, as I speak, as we speak, in Monterey, California, is the Monterey Collector Car Week. A lot of exciting things going on. Big Porsche thing at the beginning of the week, Porsche Monterey. Motorsports Classics is doing the, or Classic Motorsports, I should say, the magazine out of Daytona, is doing a big event on Tuesday in Pacific Grove. And then the Little Car Show takes place in downtown Monterey. And then they have Legends of the Autobahn on Thursday. And then on Friday is the Porsche Works Reunion. And yours truly will be there working with Team Fastlane Travel. You've heard me talk about Fastlane Travel many times on the radio show. They're good friends of ours, and I do some promotional work for them. Their specialty is tours to the Porsche factory and surrounding areas. So, for example, if you want to drive on the Autobahn or if you want to drive some really nice, windy, twisty roads through the Black Forest in Schwabenland, Germany, this is the company you want to sign up with. These guys have had years and years of experience since 1975. Stay at five-star hotels, five-star dining, get to take tours to the Porsche factory, the Porsche Museum, the Mercedes factory, the Mercedes Museum, the BMW factory, the BMW Museum, and some private collections. Oh yeah, and on occasion, we might even be able to arrange a ride on the infamous Nürburgring. And depending on the time of year, we get to go to the Oktoberfest und drink echt deutsches Bier. So if you're a car guy and you want to have some car guy fun driving on the European roads like a European, definitely visit and check out FastLaneTravel.com. You won't be disappointed. And then on Saturday is the Concorso Italiano, which is one of the largest Italian car gatherings. And while all this stuff is going on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, over at Laguna Seca, our racing friends are conducting the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion 2023. Some amazing racing going on with some amazing vintage race cars. Not to be missed. And of course, don't forget the auctions are going to take place. You got Meekum, you got Gooding, you got RM, you got Bonhams and Broad Arrow. And then on Sunday is the Creme de la Creme, the Pièce de Résistance, and the grand finale, the Pebble Beach Concourse d'Elegance. So it should be an exciting week. Definitely something you need to put on your bucket list. Before you slip into unconsciousness, I'd like to have another kiss. 
the annoying Jay Leno and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for part two with our special guest, legendary designer, Disneyland rides creator, Bob Gurr. Bob, welcome back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. How are you doing this evening? Hey, we can keep right on going now with where we left off, and uh, you give me the next set of questions. Oh, absolutely. Well, anyway, all right, so when we left off the other day, we were talking about Disneyland and how you got invited there, and you said that somebody from the Art Center suggested you go see somebody within the Disneyland organization. Now, you take it from there. What happened? Okay, normally uh, when a company is going to do a big project, they— they draft out a list of the kind of people they want, and then, of course, you know, they put it in the newspapers and all that kind of stuff, and then they have people come in, look at your resume and all that. No, Walt Disney doesn't do any of that. He goes around the studio and says, hey, do you know a guy can do this, a guy can do that? And he talked to uh, a guy that was a good friend of mine, one of his animators, Ward Kimball, who was in the same car club I was, the Horses Carriage Club. And also, uh, Ben Silverstein was a uh, also in the same club, and he was a, like a movie producer. So Walt found two guys recommending my name. And, of course, they dug out the phone number of uh, the office I was doing the temporary work and said, come on out in the, in the 20 minutes and, and meet this Mr. Irvine. So that's how the whole thing started. And as I, I mentioned before, the fact that there was a little chassis of a small car on the back lot of the Disney studio in Burbank, and, and taking one look at that, it needed a body. Well, I found out the reason I was called was because the guy who built the chassis, uh, a you know, typical lawnmower shop, the guy could not build a body. They needed now a bodybuilder to, to uh, come in and look. And sure enough, uh, I could see what they wanted, and since I was a, like an outside temporary consultant, I made drawings, came in the first Saturday, and then I came back the second Saturday. So this time, and we're in the morning, and the little chassis out there early in the morning. I come in with the drawings, and uh, a couple of the Disney people that I was talking with the previous week we're standing around the car. You know how a guy's put their foot on the tire and they put their elbow on their knee and then they cogitate about the car. We had a spare tire available, and this older guy walks up, kind of unshaven, kind of ratty-looking guy, and puts his foot on the tire, and we're all chattering about what to do with the car. And then finally, when he walks away, he the guy say, I see you, Walt. And I thought, that was Walt Disney? 
Wow. <laughs> I never met him. I just started working with him. <laughs> it's weird. Interesting. But he was that way with everybody. He would um, he would hire people in, into the company, uh, you know, to do the things he needed uh, doing, you know, particularly on this new Disneyland job, which was uh, had been underway for some number of months. And Walt would always look for a self-starter type of person. Walt would ask a person to do something but not be too specific. He did it more as an asking rather than a telling. And I found that to be true because by the time I had been there like five years, he walks up and says, well, we found our monorail company in Germany. But here's the pictures of it. It's not very good looking. So I want you to get started on our monorail right away. And then he walks out the door, leaving me with no specifics. Well, stop and think a minute. Uh, if you're a self-starter and you have imagination, that is the best position to be in because I got a pencil and a paper. Within like two days, I figured out what this monorail should look like and then was thinking about it every day. And within uh, two weeks, I made enough drawings that my uh, then uh, uh, boss that I was working for, head of the machine shop, a fellow by the name of Roger Brogy, he and I fly to Germany to discuss uh, the fact that their name's going to be on our monorail, but I'm going to engineer it, and I'm not an engineer. Uh, it took a week to calm these German engineers down. <laughs> <laughs> and to stop and think of this, worse than that, from the day that I made the very first sketch, that you know, literally the day that Walt said get started on, on the monorail, eight and a half months later, we've built two trains, they're installed on a new beamway in Disneyland, and I'm giving Walt and his friend Richard Nixon, the vice president of the United States, a ride on it. Eight and a half months. What year is this? This would be, a, started it in the um, second week of October of 1958, and we opened it June 17th in 1959, only eight and a half months later. So tell us about this German company that made the monorail. So what was their monorail originally designed for that you were able to take it and apply it to what Walt Disney wanted? All right. There was a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Axel L. Wintergren, a Swedish fellow who had a lot of industrial uh, money in Germany right after World War II, and the Germans would not let him take the money back home uh, to, uh, to Sweden. So he says, okay, I'll stay here and I'll spend it for something. And he looked around and he thought, you know, monorails. We should need a new type of monorail. Because there has been a monorail in, since 1898 in Wuppertal, Germany, the kind that you know hangs from an overhead rail. Right. And he thought, oh, why don't we make one where we put a concrete beam and we put the train on top of it, you know, sort of straddling it. Yeah. So this was a whole new configuration done only because he couldn't think of anything else to do with the money that the Germans wouldn't let him take home. <laughs> well, that's an interesting I mean, story. Yeah. So he built a uh, sort of like a, you know, well, like a less than a half size scale, real streamlined, cute looking one that had a, went around a track with a steep bank, just enough to show that this idea of a, um, of a, a vehicle would sit down and on top of a beam, but straddle it with wheels on the side and the wheels on the top to, to hold it up and then keep it from tipping over. You got wheels on the side. They proved that. Then they went ahead and built what would be a full size car, like a street car, uh, or, or you know, like a bus. Right. And uh, it was a typical looking 
German vehicle. You know, in other words, blunt, not very attractive. It was strictly <laughs> functional. And Walt Disney and his wife, Lily, were driving down this highway in Cologne, Germany, in the summer, uh, late summer of 1958. And all of a sudden, this monorail drives across the road in front of him. So he stops because he always wanted a monorail in his park going back to 1952. So he struck up a conversation with the company, which was named uh, Alwick, at, you know, for Dr. Axel L. Wintergren. So uh, he made a deal with him that he would send one of our vice presidents immediately back to Germany to create a business structure between the Alweg company and um, uh, the Disney company. But in a matter of just a couple of weeks, Walt saw that, well, he didn't like the looks of their train and they weren't prepared to, to come up with a, a very you know custom design. Because they wanted to build a, like a stock train, where it was easier for them. So, by the time Walt showed me the pictures and launched me into designing it, I had just enough pictures that Walt said, "Okay, you and Roger Brook, you go back to Germany uh, and follow up with our business plan." And so Roger and I did the the technical argument for a week, in which we tried to show them. Why are we going to do our version of their type of train differently than what uh, what they had been doing? Now, remember, German engineers always have a diploma on the wall. It says, you know, diploma engineer. <laughs> and in the course of the week, uh, they inquired, what is my experience? And I said, well, I was a car stylist for a, a few months at the Ford Motor Company. Uh, and it dawned on them, I'm not a diploma engineer. I haven't been to a university. I have no credentials. And you are a Mickey Mouse outfit, and you're only a car stylist, and you're going to make a train with with our basic design? They were furious. But our executive had been over there two weeks before, He'd already made the financial agreement. Now the Germans were stuck with the technical side of the agreement. Ah. <laughs> well, here's the joke. Um, I learned many years later that the Germans uh, were very upset with this business arrangement. That's just not the way you do things in Germany. And they had a guy do an analysis of uh, our suspension and prove that it would not work. And anyway, by the time the guy, this is a, a guy by the name of Professor Vengatz, was a vehicular dynamicist at Dusseldorf University. Oh boy. Anyway, by the second week, we got the train running, and I'm the test driver, uh, and, you know, training, training, you know, the manager of the monorail, and then there did the train other, you know, uh, ride operators. We get a telegram from Professor Vengatz, and, uh, uh, do not proceed with construction of monorail. Impossible to work. And we sent a telegram back, and this is, bring your measuring instruments over. I'll give you a ride on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. The guy shows up. He's really stiff-looking guy, black coat, very serious, got his instruments and everything. And I put him in a train, and I drive the train around, you know, who did get with no passengers, you know, just give him, give him a test ride. And the look on the guy's face, he's eating the biggest bucket of crow in his life. <laughs> 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 he, got, he got paid a bundle of money to prove it's not working, and he's riding on it. <laughs> so this is an indelible lesson 
about the idea you can have theories, but the practice always works if it's working. But anyway, two days later, uh, the guy was kind of friendly, and then I said, hey, why don't you come over to my, my, my house tonight, and I'll, uh, my wife will cook dinner for us. And he kind of loosened up, and then when he opened the door, my wife opened the door, he walks in, she takes the big black coat to hang up, then she stupidly says to him, oh, my dear professor, during the war, were you a Nazi? <laughs> uh, I was ready to wring her neck, and all of a sudden, you the man cracked. He started laughing, and he says, yes, my dear, at dinner, I'll tell you all about it. And he, and he did. So we became really good friends before, you know, the day before he had to fly back to Germany. And then the funny thing is, years later, like, well, three years later in Seattle, Alwright builds a monorail train, and, you know, it's a typical good-looking German train for the time, and it's still running up there in Seattle. But I understood it had a lot of suspension bearing problems. They were having having a fit, trying to retrofit a lot of those parts. And uh, I was up there. Uh, the company sent me up for another reason. And I get up early in the morning, and I go into their monorail shed, and I find a ladder, and I climb up underneath the train so I can get a good look at what their problem is. And then I hear these clomping goose step-like steps <laughs> echoing in the building, and I hear this clump, clump, clump. Clump hop, and all of a sudden the head peers up, and it's it's Mr. Van Gatz, and he goes, "Oh no, not you!" <laughs> <laughs> he, he did he did not want me to see his his mistakes. <laughs> anyway, it all ended well. We had a great relationship with Alweg, which is primarily for marketing reasons. They wanted to enter America in the worst ways, and Walt wanted a monorail, and the, you know the two companies. You know, it had a joint venture type of thing. And the name was on the train called Allwake Monorail, Disney and Allwake Monorail System, I think, for 10 years because that was, a you know, like a legal agreement. Right. But uh, but Allwake never had anything to do with it. But the final joke was they wanted to build something to fit the train. And I'm engineering. I'm designing it, doing all the mechanical design, supervising the manufacturer and all that stuff. So they agreed that they would supply us the steel side springs for the side suspension, which is kind of a tricky thing. When we installed them, and within a couple of weeks, they started to crack. And we were having a big problem with it. So without letting them know, uh, I was going to take them all out, and I redesigned them to be made out of a new plastic called urethane. Because we can make urethane springs with, you know, rising rates, a spring uh, type of um, arrangement. So we swapped them out, and then Allweg found out one day that uh, we were sending their springs back. Well, why? Well, we they broke. <laughs> so the only thing they built for me broke. <laughs> oh, my. That, that's more story than you wanted to hear. What powered the monorail? Oh, it's a very standard electrical system uh, using 600-volt direct current. Uh, now, when you go to do the monorail like this, it's never been done in America. You know, you grow up in L.A., Southern California, and we hang out with hot riders and race cars. We're the kind of people that would, why invent something if you can go to the junkyard and get it and use it, you know, make something out of it? So I was very aware of the uh, type of electric uh, streetcars used in uh, America since 1936 called the PCC car. And this is a standard car made by electrical by General Electric. All the streetcars in America are almost all the same. 
using 600 volt DC current. So we were able to go get some used motors and some used uh, PCCR, PCC car equipment. So now we had a complete propulsion system of used parts that we could uh, make, make into the two monorails. Another feature was there was a type of a suspension used pretty much for uh, like gravel trucks, uh, a device called a Smithway. What this mounted to was the major suspension component I would need for the train is a store-bought item we can buy locally. So you see what I'm doing? I'm combining functional bits and pieces without having to invent them. But the only invention would be the basic chassis of the vehicle, like the basic frame, you know, with an aluminum body on it, an interior and all that, which is not inventing a thing, only making a good-looking shape, which will carry the people, the wheels, suspension, electric motors, electric propulsion system equipment. This is sort of like a hot rodder's way to make a new train. Okay, so basically for all practical purposes, yeah, it's like you bought a chassis and your Murphy body, and you Murphy body the chassis facilitate your, your ultimate goal. Yes, what you do is, uh, uh, to the greatest extent possible, I always uh, design things from the standpoint, how much functioning parts, wheels, bearings, bits and pieces, and drive lines and differentials, what can I buy that's automotive that I can then use in a brand new vehicle. So if you really looked at the inside of the monorail underneath the mechanical, you'd recognize a lot of store-bought American trucking equipment where the Germans would invent everything from scratch because they're engineers. If you're a trained engineer, (laughs) you don't go to a junkyard. (laughs) You have a long-winded, complicated design. But if you're in a hot router in Southern California, no, you go first to the junkyard to see what you can get. Well, you know, it's interesting. We had Bob McKee on our show a couple of weeks ago, and he was the, the guy that built the McKee race cars and, and a helmet uh, turbine car. And that's what he was known for, was getting as much off-the-shelf parts readily available and, if anything, just tweaking them to make them work. So it sounds like that's exactly what you did. Let me ask you this. Yes. Was the original yeah, body aluminum, or what was it? what type of material was the exterior made of originally? Oh, uh, we used uh, sheet aluminum for the sides. You know, like the, the you know the lower part of the body was you know like fluted uh, lines, mm-hmm. pretty much like the Burlington Zephyr uh, train in the 1930s. That was a good-looking American train, and then of course you know it had a kind of a rocket shape to it. Uh, like the front and rear sheet metal is all compound uh, metal, and that's and that we made that out of uh, very light gauge uh, uh, steel. Uh, because that was the easiest thing to form. And, of course, here comes the hot rod part again, or the IndyCar part. Uh, down in L.A., there's a place called California Metal Shaping, and all you do is make a, a wooden, wooden form, a set of formers, mm-hmm. uh, that you take it down there, and the guys will uh, will form sheet metal, you know, it's by, you know, English rolls is the way they do it. And you and you make these shapes and then weld the pieces together and smooth it all out and we have them build it and then we bring them up to our shop and then we uh, attach the thing to our our chassis. Same thing if you know what the monorail the Mark One looked like. It's got kind of like fins down on the bottom and it's all kind of aircraft looking. Mm-hmm. We do those the same way. Those are uh, aluminum and they're built on the same forming rolls as the Indy cars. 
being done like every um, springtime for racing. And again, again, even sports cars and Indy cars, the guys all get their medal rolled out at Cal Metal, just the same as guys restoring a Duesenberg and need new fenders. They take their little wooden forms down there, and they'll roll out and make fenders for them. Is that what they call so, bucks, wooden bucks? Yeah, you know, well, it, we, uh, there's two ways to do it. If you have a solid one, like a wooden buck, like mm-hmm. a production car, like the way Porsche used to do them long ago, that's one way. But the other is to use what we call formers. In other words, you slice the vehicle up like every 10 inches. You have a slice through it. So that means the the metal can just lay across the top of every one of these uh, section formers. And that way, when the guys are forming the metal by hand, they're just using their skills and their eyeball. Oh. And they just uh, keep curving it till it uh, smoothly fits close to all the uh your formers and i draw i make a drawing of the what we call lofting of the body the compound curves part and from that lofting i then make a design for the uh the the, you know the wooden buck you know the former frame and then the the wood shop at the disney studios they just saw it out and, and nail it all together and then we put it on a truck and take it to cal metal and uh couple of weeks later, we get the bucks back and we get uh, parts for uh, two monorails, for, you know, four compound curved ends. Are and the flat part, the sheet metal part, is just it's simply rolled flat metal. Now, do you have, when you do these drawings, are there dimensions on there? I mean, if you hand me a drawing, and I'm trying to envision this in my head, is it like, you know, like, let's just say, let's use a fender as an example, okay, which has got multiple compound curves to it. So, uh-huh. and it's got different radius. It's got a radius going to the front. It's got radiuses on the sides. It's got the, the radius on the bottom. And then it comes back. Are there dimensions? Okay, yeah. it's so many. In, and so, so these guys have to, uh, is it simple mathematics or is it complicated mathematics that these guys got to worry about here? Okay. All right. Treating the front fin of the monorail or the front body of the monorail, same as you do a Duesenberg fender. Right. You make a drawing. Uh, in some cases, you make a full-size drawing, but sometimes the drawing's too big. You make it a small scale, like quarter size. Right. But you do it very accurately, uh, you know, 2D drafting, pencil and paper, you know, nothing magic, no computer. And you carefully do that because you know how, because you were at the Art Center School, and they then they taught you surface development of how surfaces are defined on a 2D drawing. Then from that 2D drawing, we blow it up, you know, photographically, and then that goes out to the wood shop, and then they make the full size, um, you know, the wood patterns and, and put it all together. Now you have something you can form the metal over. Sometimes it's aluminum, sometimes it's very uh, thin steel. It's it's the same technique. Here's the funny thing. Disneyland's new monorail, having been the first monorail in America, was built with the techniques of hot rod shops in L.A. Yeah, the difference is this. Go back to the speed, eight and a half months. Had we designed the monorail like you would today, like if a company said, okay, we're going to design a monorail, it would take several years because first you got to request for a proposal. Somebody's got to come back with a proposal with competitive bids. It all has to be analyzed and all that sort of stuff with the idea they're going to proceed with a very expensive program where they're going to design and tool up to build everything. We never did that at Disney. We just 
did it in the fastest method we could think of to do anything. And that was the same for the Mark II monorail, the Mark III, the Mark IV monorail, because I designed all four of them, all the way up to we, we built a little streamlined train called a Viewliner. Uh, you know, before we did that, we I did a, a railroad cars, 1880s, and duplicated them out of metal so they look like wood. All of this is done in the same way where you think, oh, how's the fastest, easiest way to do this? Not inventing any, because we, we don't have any time. Entirely different method of business. Very interesting. So Walt Daly himself, was he kind of a car guy, you know, originally? I mean, does he have an interest in, in cars at all? Well, he drove a 36 Packard yellow convertible and drove his school kids to school every day. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, oh, yeah. He was very aware of cars. Well, he, a car guy in this respect, he would be perfectly happy with a two or three year old Cadillac convertible. He always had convertibles. Then one day he wound up with a Thunderbird, and then well, just a spur of the moment, one day he drove by a Mercedes place, and he liked the little uh, two, 1964 230, little little roadster. He liked that. In fact, his daughter still had it up up in their family home later. Yeah, but here's the thing: Walt was a very fast read at anything mechanical. Uh, he was people see him as a you know Mickey Mouse cartoonist. No. He had a railroad in his backyard. He built a steam railroad. When he was building the little train, some of the metal parts uh, for the locomotive, he had, he, he'd stay over at night and work in the machine shop, and my boss would show him how to uh, do metal forming, how to do machine work. And then Walt knew how to build wood, and he built all the little wood cars. So here you got a guy who, when you're talking about building something big and complex, he has a great understanding just by looking at it. You don't have to explain anything to him. A lot of people did not know that. Interesting. Tell us about the other rides that you uh, designed and built for Disneyland. I mean, as a kid growing up in the 60s in California, Disneyland was like the place to go, and I couldn't wait to get on some of those cars. So tell us about some of those that you designed. Okay. Well, we got into the monorail, which is 19, uh, starting in 19... Uh, 58, right. let's back up to uh, 54. Oh. We're going to do the little, little Autopia car. Okay. That's what it's called, Autopia. Uh. And I'm going to do the body. And as I start making the drawings for the body and making arrangements, we're going to build a clay model and make molds, you know, so we can build the bodies. Uh, my boss, Roger Brogy, says, oh, by the way, the little chassis that this guy in the lawnmower shop built, it's not very good. So I want you to redesign it. Oh. I don't know anything about engineering chassis, but I, I had an auto shop in high school. I know how to rebuild a Model A. I know how to rebuild a Ford V8. You know, well, okay. <laughs> so I had to teach myself engineering from the start. It was a long process, but we got the 40 cars built, and then Disneyland opened in 55. The end of the first week, out of 37 production ride cars, only two were left running. Oh, I'm not an engineer, but I really, really need to learn a lot here. So it was a call to learn by doing, and I did that all the rest of my life just by that way. So my engineering was better because I didn't pay for it, and every job was new, and everything we did, you couldn't have gone to college to teach you how to do it, so you were on your own no matter what. Walt had that with everybody who was doing stuff. Hire people, figuring, well, what, what they might be able to do, and they did. Anyway, back to the Utopia. Uh, 
throughout the summer of 55, we got the cars all running good again, but now I could see what the improvements needed to be, and we did that. Then Walt wanted an antique car for Main Street. So there's some guys with old cars, you know, brass era cars. Well, I went out and looked at a couple of these. It was barn. I mean, there were barns of these kind of cars in L.A. LA area. And the guy was trying to sell them to Walt, and I said, no, no, no. There's no way to buy an old car and keep it running. I said, I'll make a brand new old car. And Walt says, how do you do that? There's nothing to an old car. You know, we just take um, make a ladder chassis, you know, we scrounge up a Jeep back axle and a, and, a, and a 37 Plymouth sprint car, race car front end on it. And the rest of the car is just sheet metal, you know, and I'll buy an, I'll buy a radiator, engine, flywheel housing, transmission, drive shaft, Jeep rear axle, brakes, all the way to the wheels is store-bought. The functional part is store-bought. And then the rest of it is just flat sheet metal and curved sheet metal. So we built one car, and then we built next year, we built another car, a little bit longer. And then he says, oh, we we need an omnibus, a double-deck omnibus. And I said, yeah, Walt, there's the one across the river. I say, yeah, double-decker from Sunset Boulevard. One, they used the double-deckers, and my, body, my father was a driver of those um, double-deck buses on Sunset Boulevard. Then Walt says, oh, I'll come back from my office. I got a dinky car I bought here in uh, London. And here I'll show you to a little tiny thing. And he says, can you do something like that? Well, sure. So... What do we do? Why would you build an entire vehicle? I go to International Harvester Truck Company just up the street, and I ask uh, for a, I want to buy a beer truck, which is called a Z-drop frame. It's like a stock frame, and you you slice it and put a drop center uh, because the beer truck's like that. That gives me a lower height uh, frame. Then I design a body from scratch. It's just, uh, you know, inch inch and a quarter square tube, you know, formed and then wrap it with sheet metal and then build, the, you know, the cowl and the front end so it looks 1905, and it's brand new. And we built a number of those. Stuff like that. That's that's the way you do it. <laughs> How long were you at Disneyland with uh, Walt 27 Disney? 27 years. 27 years. Oh, with Walt Disney, yeah, 27 years. What was the last monorail you designed? Uh, the Mark IV for Walt Disney World, when Walt Disney World opened uh, October 1st of 1971, uh, I had made the, the Disneyland train had to be a bigger, longer, wider version of the Mark III we built as the third model at Disneyland. It went much more improved now that I had time to design a really good suspension, get everything running so it's going to run really flawless. Uh, the monorail for Florida is called the Mark IV. We ran that about 20 years. Um, so that was a giant production job. took several years. We had parts built all over America, and we shipped everything to, to uh, Mark Mir at Marietta in, in Orlando. That was our final assembly factory. Really? And then we started uh, phasing them in uh, in the uh, summer of 71 and have a bunch of them all running when we opened October 1st. Now, did they all use the same type of electric propulsion system? Uh, yes. Everything uh, everything in America is 600-volt DC. It's a very standard way of doing things. Uh, but in the case of the Mark IV in, in, in Florida, we didn't go to the junkyard. <laughs> <laughs> we actually yeah, we went to the manufacturers 
you know, General Electric for most of the propulsion stuff, uh, Rockwell Standard, big company builds truck axles. And one of the key things, we needed a, um, a steerable axle. Like, you know, you got a front drive car, you have to have a universal joint, a, a very special type. Well, when you got a big vehicle, uh, and it has to be very accurate, the type of a joint is called a Jeppa joint. That's what it's pronounced, but it has a C. Jeppa joint, and I needed a certain one that was really chunky so that you could hold about 12,000 pounds on, the, on uh, each hub. So with Rockwell Standard, I just look in their catalog. Oh, they got just what I want. All we got to do is, you know, cut off the parts we don't want and use the main functional parts. And I look at the drawings. This was made for a 1936 Oshkosh truck. Hmm. Well, guess what? What this means is we're going to buy something that's a store-bought part, very affordable, but it's got decades of, of service history. So we have brand new stuff that's going to last uh, last forever uh, without inventing a thing, just by knowing where to find manufactured items that you can assemble and modify. Same way with a, uh, we need a 90-degree drive. Oh, a truck differential. Oh, well, we can narrow that up. Oh, didn't you ever see a slingshot dragster? They take <laughs> a truck and whack it down and... You got these little short drive shafts to, to the to the axles. It, it's it's hot rod stuff. Um, let me ask you this too: as far as uh, the servicing intervals and charging intervals, what was that like? Or did the monorail was it able to charge itself as it as it was rolling whoa, around? And... Whoa, whoa, just a minute! You ever you ever seen a streetcar going down the tracks and it's got the thing sticking up in the yeah, back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Running on a overhead what? Yeah. Okay. You ever go? You ever fall on a New York subway and try to avoid the third rail? No. Uh, because you don't have it over it. You have it down on the what's called the third oh. rail. Okay. You you are picking up electrical current from bus bars. Oh. Okay. Oh, on the monorail. If you look, take another look at the beamway on a monorail, you'll see uh, two bars. One is uh, positive and the other is uh, negative. You know, six hundred volt coming through the motors and system and resistors and then go back to ground through the ground bar. It's all, it's all standard streetcar stuff. Interesting. Nothing to invent. Nothing to invent. Okay. Well, that makes it good. It makes it uh, very economical in the long run. Then what were the sort of service intervals like on, on, uh, on a monorail? Okay. Well, number one, uh, when you operate a train system, there's a lot of things involved. You know, you have the vehicle part, tire part, suspension part, electrical part, and interior and controls and all that sort of stuff. We make a maintenance manual. You know, it's a big thing, about three inches thick. Maintenance manual that has a lot of the technical drawings, has uh, all of the service information, which we get from Rockwell Standard and General Electric. So in other words, this is like having a great big truck and you have a big service manual for it. We do the same thing. With all of our uh, Disney vehicles, they all have come with a service manual. Now, also backing up just a little bit, when you ask the question about how do we get the compound-shaped metal, uh, you know, with dimensions, you mentioned the word dimensions. The way I would design is I would literally lay out by hand, pencil and paper, all of the parts and all of the structure of a vehicle. And as I finish these layouts, they're not a complete drawing, but the design is complete. I would have several draftsmen help me, and I would say, okay, I got this part of the frame done. Okay, start making the drawings of that. 
and they would take my layouts and then make what we call production drawings. So this can get very involved, like with a monorail for Florida, uh, a large amount of drawings, but literally 90% of the structure of the vehicle, the body framing and suspension everything, I hand drew every bit of it and passed it off to about four drafters to do it all. So that way, when we want to make parts, we have a production drawing and we can call a vendor and come in and say, hey, we want to have uh, these parts made to our factory drawings. And just like regular industry, they, they price it, they manufacture it, they deliver it, and we've got drawings and the parts match the drawing or are supposed to. And then we use that as the basis for uh, continuing uh, service. That's interesting. Uh, I got to ask you this. Okay, so from Disney, in the, when I used to go there as a kid in the early 60s, and I was talking about those cars, I remember that there was one area there where they had looked like it looked like a little highway, and there was like maybe five, six cars in a row, and they were you know they had like these little bumpers on the front of them, you know, it looked like they were like spring loaded type deals, and and I think they were two steering wheels in them, if I remember correctly, and they ran around, and I think those had like a little guide in the center. Did you design yeah. those two? And no, no, uh, yeah, you're talking about the little um, I think it was called what would you call it? I think it's called Junior Utopia. Uh, these were a small car that uh, ran on a little guide track, and these are for little itty-bitty kids who wouldn't be able to steer, but the steering wheels were there just to play with. Right. Uh, yeah. Those, and they were ran on electricity. They were small. They were made by the Aero Development Company up in the Bay Area, and that was a standard car that they sold to a lot of amusement parks. So a lot of, a lot of companies use that little car but walt was reluctant to buy a stock car uh, for rides he wanted his own car that's why the utopia that's why the antique cars on main street that's why the omnibus uh and the same certainly with a monorail and the viewliner train all those kind of things the other car once you were 42 inches high you were able to drive a putt-putt car that had a one-cylinder engine in it and had a steering wheel, and you could actually drive it. And these were called bump cars, and they're not supposed to bump each other, but they do. Uh, and that was called Autopia. And that's the most people in America, when they grew up, the first car they ever drove was the Autopia car at, at a, a Disney park. That was probably the one I rode then too. That's and that's why I asked that. Yeah, I had if, to. If, it, if you remember, it had a gasoline engine and made noise. That was it. Yeah, yeah. How about some of the rides that were in? You know, like I'm trying to think back now. You know, the 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 actual rides that you went into. You know, like uh, I'm not going to say roller coasters, but let's say like uh, remember Eastern Airlines had an exhibit there in, in Disneyland and Disney World, and then there was Futureland and all this other stuff. And did you design yeah. some of those rides as well? Well, sure. Uh, the one you just mentioned, that, that was uh, I think it was called a Delta Airlines. If you had wings. Eastern and Eastern it, Airlines. It was Eastern Airlines. Yeah. Oh, Eastern. Okay. When well, they we, when we they were still around. <laughs> yeah, we changed a lot of airlines all the time. Anyway, um, the machine that has the body that you ride in has a lot of mechanical stuff under under the floor that you don't see, and that machine is called the Omnimover. That's that's the name I gave it when I started it. I designed it originally. For a 1966, I think, for 
the voyage through inner space sponsored by Monsanto Chemical Company. <laughs> this was at Disneyland. And then two years later, we used it for the Disneyland Haunted Mansion, and they were called Doom Buggies. They were, you know, a little dark gray, a little car uh, that the body would turn, you know, right, left, and tilt up and down. And that was a, that was an invention I, that I came up with. We've used those on a number of attractions. They're on Haunted Mansions rides in several of the parks. We've got them in the Little Mermaid here at uh, Disneyland, and of course Walt Disney World with the, um, uh, you know the, yeah I forget the name of the uh, the attraction with the blue cars. Then we had uh, like the Buzz Lightyear cars. All those are uh, on a uh, endless chain of vehicles. Uh, it's extremely reliable. We have the highest possible reliability and the highest. Um, theoretical uh, hourly throughput in a reliable manner for or a dark ride like that. So those those are machines that um, we can't go to the store and buy, so we invent them ourselves for our own reasons. And, of course, it's always, uh, you know, when Walt was alive, it's, oh, Bobby, I want you to get started on. And then, of course, after Walt's gone, it's my boss, Roger, says, oh, Bob, we want you to get started on. <laughs> and we just... Start off with pencil and paper and doodle it away to a point where you're making technical drawings and pretty soon you're manufacturing. We have our own shops, a lot of the things we built ourselves. And, you know, we wind up with a big manufacturing company after a while. Super. All right. Hey, Bob, guess what? We are up against the clock. So what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to, and this is too interesting, too fascinating, and I really, truly enjoy it. So here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to bring you back for part three. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to thank you for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And uh, I want to bring you back next week for part three. And I'm delighted to have you as a guest on part one, part two. And it's really, really fascinating because this takes me back to when I was a little kid, too, as well. So, Bob, you're going to be back next week. And uh, we will. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. We'll do... gonna, if you keep asking questions, you're going to have part 19. Well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm good for that. I, so far, my record's <laughs> part three. But, yeah, I'm up, I'm up for part four, five, six, seven, eight. So, Bob, I want to thank right. you in the meantime. See you next time. And we'll see you next time. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, yeah. Chased our pleasures here, dug our treasures there.